Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I forget when it was exactly. Maybe it was uh, two, maybe three years ago. I picked up uh, Showcase Presents Superman Volume 1. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Showcase reprints, these are basically Silver Age reprints. Um, extremely cheap. Uh, black and white, and uh, basically the cover price on this thing is $9.99. And what I find is that uh, as much as I love pre-crisis Superman, I have to be in a certain mood for pre-crisis Superman. And this, I mean, I, I, I and that's, that's why I, I bought it. Not because I was in the mood, you know, for Silver Age Superman at the time, but because I knew that the time would come when I would be, and then I would love to have ultra-cheap you know, reprints of these uh, comics at my disposal. And I've gone through a lot of... Uh, I don't know. I, I call it the fanboy muse, because you know it's hard for me to stay focused on any one thing for any length of time. That's why Trenus Magnus Punches Reality is so neurotic. And it's because it's, you know, I have to go all over the map because I couldn't sustain an index type of show, right? I don't love anything that much. And so I like the idea of having a format that lends itself to a lot of, you know, jumping around uh, between different topics and all of that kind of stuff. And then I can just, and pretty much the way it works is I record these things, you know, for the moment just to hell with what the actual release schedule for these things, you know, the order in which you hear these things. I record my shows when the fandom, uh, when the fanboy muse takes me in that direction. And that's generally, you know, what happens. So I have no idea how it comes across to people listening, but to actually do this stuff, that's just the way that, the way that works best for me, because it, to me at least, it makes a difference that you guys can hear, I hope you can hear, the excitement um, that I have about whatever I'm talking about because it's at its most pure at that moment, you know? So that's just how I roll. I'm not casting aspersions on the way other podcasters handle their business. I'm just saying that's the way that works best for me. And to bring it all back to what I wanted to talk about here, this uh, Showcase Presents Superman Volume 1 of $9.99 as the, uh, cover, the uh, cover price I've gone through a lot of Silver Age Superman fanboy muses where I've... I just want to read this stuff just cover to cover. There's not enough. I just, I just want to know it all and absorb it all. And that's, that's where I've been, especially in the last week, because um, I recently moved, uh, moved into a, a new apartment. I've got a new place. And so... There was a point there when I had absolutely no internet connection. There was absolutely nothing better going on. And so, just cracked this thing open and, you know, gave it a read. Because, you know, again, irrespective of when these episodes come out, it wasn't really all that long ago that, uh, that uh, John M. Wilson and I got together to talk about All-Star Superman. And ever since then, I've just been in a serious pre-crisis Superman type of mood. So like I said, went ahead and um, opened this thing, and as it happens, it fell it fell open right at Action Comics number 252, which for those of you who don't know, 
It's actually a very uh, historic issue for a lot of reasons. It's the first appearance of Supergirl. It's the first appearance of Metallo. And in and, and a uh, backup story, it's also the uh, first appearance of uh, Martian Manhunter. So all around, this is an incredibly uh, important and historic issue. But when you when you isolate it from that, when you just read it as a story and, you know, just don't think about the uh, historical significance of it all. I mean, this is just a really good fucking comic. And then, of course, that got me, you know, reading some of the other comics, uh, you know, the other reprints that are listed in here. And before I knew it, I was just going through reprint after reprint after reprint, and um, I'm just I'm just loving the uh, loving this stuff. And in fact, I'm recording this as sort of the last this intro. I'm recording this as sort of the last thing I do before I head out. Uh, to pick up uh, lunch, I'm gonna I'm gonna get some pizza, and then I'm going to uh, uh, pick up uh, uh, Showcase Presents Superman Volume Two from my LCS because I just want to have this stuff. I want to have more of it. And let's face it, I'm not likely to ever be able to uh, afford you know these these original issues like these original comics. Even in shitty condition, I just there's just no way. You know, a complete run of everything that these that these paperbacks reprint. Fucking, there's just there's no way I could do that. And so, this is you know a, a good alternative. I mean, yeah, I have scans of these things, and I can put them on my my iPad anytime I want to and read them that way. But end of the day, I mean, you know, there's something to be said for having the comic in your hand. And, you know, and in such a portable format. And honestly, not that it would happen, but, you know, God forbid something does happen, you know, to these uh, reprints. And, I don't know, maybe it somehow, you know, I don't know, falls out a window and gets run over by a truck, rained on, and then some homeless guy comes along and pisses all over it. Well, you know what? I'm out nine ninety nine plus tax, and I think I can swing that, you know? Getting a replacement for, for this would be very easy to do. Getting a, a replacement for my iPad, a little bit harder. And so, but I, I think the thing that ultimately just really works for me about uh, the pre-crisis Superman is just, it's how, I guess, over-the-top imaginative this stuff is. I mean, guys, keep in mind, these, these stories were written for children, right? That's style. The content, though... That is something else entirely, and this is just content that we we just don't see anymore. This kind of balls out over the top imagination where literally anything is possible on any page, and you know it just it 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 works for me. I love the I I, I love the the pre crisis Superman because to me this stuff is just so fucking mythic. You know this is myth, and I feel like look as much as I love. As much as I as I truly just love the Burn Age Superman, I'm a big post-crisis Superman fan, but for as much as I love it, I never once remember picking up an issue of Superman in the post-crisis era and thinking, you know what, the sky's the limit. Literally anything can happen in this story. You know, for as awesome as as that run of Superman is, and I would say that as far as just you know, continuous quality and ongoing awesomeness, just month-to-month consistency, I would put uh, the post-crisis Superman over anything, right? Nothing lasted longer as far as 
in, stories that at least I find enjoy, uh, enjoyable. This, in my lifetime, I, I truly do believe the uh, post-crisis Superman, that track record is never going to be beat. But, as I say, you know, for as much as I love it, I don't remember ever once feeling like, you know what, anything can happen in this story. Anything is possible. The sky is the limit. You know, and you get that all the time with uh, the pre-crisis stuff, where, you know, some of the stories might be a little bit formulaic, sure, but, you know, who could have ever predicted that, uh, you know, after reading Action Comics number 251, that in Action Comics number 252, we'd be introduced to, a, to a Metallo, and then we'd be introduced to Supergirl. You know, who ever saw that coming, you know? And so... I guess my point here is that whenever you read pre-crisis Superman, especially Silver Age Superman, just try your best to contextualize this stuff. You know, the, these stories, there's no denying it, they were written for children, all right? But we need to separate style from content, all right? The content tends to be, like I said, very child-friendly and very child-accessible, and I think that works perfectly for Superman, by the way. But the style of it, you know, the the way that the stories were told and honestly, just the things that could happen. You know, I really do regard this as, you know, the, the Silver Age and then, of course, the Bronze Age is kind of an extension of the Silver Age. I regard this as, to me, this is pretty much definitive as far as Superman's concerned. And again, that's not me bashing on the post-crisis Superman. I, I've never done that. I would never do that. I'm just saying that there's a there's a purity and there's a mythicness there's a mythical quality to the pre-crisis superman that nothing else has ever matched and that's just that's how i feel about it so and it felt like this was a uh, good episode to bring all of that up so anyway there you go so enjoy the rest of the episode Attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and in spite of anything you might have heard to the contrary, Superman is not all I ever talk about. Nope. Superman's just all I've been talking about lately. Big difference there. And there's definitely a reason for all this Superman discussion, but I'll talk more about that later. For now, though, you should understand that I usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But, like I said, lately, it's been all Superman, all the time. You see, I'm in the middle of Phase 1 in a miniseries focusing exclusively on Superman. The three episodes preceding this one were 
all about Superman, and the next several episodes after this one will also be all about Superman. Now, in the course of doing this show, I've done several six-episode miniseries dedicated to one topic, theme, or idea. And they were all awesome because I do the best geek-oriented podcast on the internet. Still, when I think back on all that stuff, all the other big themed miniseries that I've ever done, I gotta say, this series I'm doing about Superman right now is probably the biggest, most ambitious thing I've ever attempted in the entire history of Trennis Magnus Punch's reality. But Superman's worth it. What can I tell you? Anyway, like I said, I've been spending tons of time going through all different kinds of Superman comics, but it hasn't been a thing where it's just comics and nothing else. Nope. I talked about a hardcover just a few weeks ago, and there's a good chance that I'm going to do at least one more collection before this is all over. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm making such a big deal out of Superman right now. Well, um, people... It should have been obvious, this year is of unprecedented importance in Superman's history. 2014 is Superman's 76th anniversary. So, my attitude about it was, there's no better way to spend 2014 than discussing Superman. 76 years, you know? I mean, this is important, it's historic. And so it made a lot of sense, to me anyway, to spend at least part of 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. You guys understand what I'm saying here? Let me just repeat it so there's no chance of missing the point. There's no better way to spend this year, 2014, and there's no better character to spend time focusing on than Superman and geeking out over the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. But anyway, that's enough of that stuff, I think. Now, if you know me at all, you probably know how much I love the Bronze Age Superman. So it should make sense that I'd eventually get to a Bronze Age Superman comic book, right? Right? Am I right? So, yeah, here we go. Today, I'm talking about Superman number 246. The story title is Danger, Monster at Work. The writer is Len Wein. Penciler is the mighty Kurt Swan. Inker is Murphy Anderson. Editor is Julius Schwartz. The cover date is December 1971. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC, which you can find at dcindexes.com, the on-sale date is October the 12th, uh, 1971. And the cover price is 25 cents. The issue starts in the middle of a big storm with Superman diving into the Marianas Trench to collect some algae and plankton samples for Star Labs. On his way out of the ocean, Superman spots a freighter caught in the huge waves caused by the storm, so he picks the ship up out of the water and brings it to Metropolis, where Superman declines thanks from the captain, saying, It's all in a day's work. Later at Star Labs... Superman delivers the algae and plankton samples to Dr. Farr. Dr. Farr then explains that he needs the samples because he basically wants to create an artificial life form that can help deal with pollution by means of a form of photosynthesis. Basically, it's going to take in polluted air and then exhale pure oxygen. 
Superman wishes Dr. Farr good luck, switches back to his disguise as Clark Kent, and heads home. He drops in on his neighbor, Mrs. Goldstein. She tells Clark that some of his neighbors are organizing some kind of building watch. And heavens, they're buying guns to use for self-defense. And that's just horrible. Clark promises he'll talk to them about it and pays the neighbors a visit. Clark tries to talk them out of doing illegal things like owning guns and protecting their homes, but these wacko extremists are determined to ignore him, so he just leaves them to it. Meanwhile, back at Star Labs, Dr. Farr's assistant notices a change in the algae compound that the doctor's been wor uh, working on and rushes off to tell him about it. Because the plot needs it to happen, there's an accident and all the algae and shit ends up falling down the drain. As that's going on, Superman's hanging around his apartment disguised as Clark Kent and thinking about what a bunch of assholes his neighbors are for exercising their constitutional right to keep and bear arms. There's not much else to do at the moment, so Superman heads back out in the middle of the storm to find something for Superman to take care of. Meanwhile, one Metropolis resident bumps into another and gets a match from him to light up a cigarette. They bullshit with each other for a little while until a trail of what looks like snot reaches out from a sewer grate, takes the cigarette away from the smoker, and then vanishes. Elsewhere in the city, another bunch of snot pops out of a manhole and attacks an old woman. Superman intervenes, so the snot retreats back down the manhole. Superman follows and sees a giant fucking snot blob is winding its way through the sewers of Metropolis, devouring every bit of bacteria and other nasty shit it can find, and leaving the sewers in pristine cleanliness. Suddenly, the giant fucking green snot blob begins expanding in size in a big bad way. Before Superman can do anything about it, he and the giant fucking green snot blob are rocketed upwards into the streets of downtown Metropolis. The giant fucking green snot blob isn't just abs uh, absorbing filth and bacteria now, though. It's trying to purify literally everything in its path. Superman realizes that the giant fucking green snot blob has adjusted to its new conditions, and it's now trying to decontaminate everything. And since everything has some amount of bacteria or another on it, there's a pretty good chance the giant fucking green snot blob will sanitize Metropolis right off the map if Superman doesn't do something about it PDQ. Superman struggles with the giant fucking green snot blob, but can't find a good way to contain it at first. But eventually, he steals a huge plastic wrap from a nearby factory to contain the giant fucking green snot blob and flies it back to Star Labs for them to deal with. When he gets back to his apartment building, he finds out there's been an accidental shooting. One of Superman's neighbors accidentally shot one of the other neighbors, so Superman zips the victim off to the hospital for treatment. The reason this happened is because nobody who owns a gun knows how to use it, so it's inevitable that shooting incidents like this are going to take place. Guys, don't believe the zillions of studies that show how incidents like this are a statistical irrelevance. You just need to accept the bullshit propaganda in this comic book and oppose gun ownership yourself. Anyway... Superman puts back on his Clark Kent disguise and goes back home where the neighbors are outside waiting, probably for more innocent people to shoot knowing them. Clark acts kind of like an asshole about the whole thing, but at least the storm has finally ended, so there's that. The end. Alright, so what did I think? Honestly, I love the hell out of this issue. For the most part, anyway. 
I mean, I just dig it. It's basically one crazy night in the life of Superman. He's not facing off with some great existential force that threatens to devour the entire fucking universe. Nope. It's just one night of Superman flying around all over the place, exploring the ocean, performing rescues, fighting weird, fucked-up science experiments, accidentally created by Star Labs, and other fun stuff. It's, it's just a fun fucking issue. And this is the kind of story that you just can't do in, in, in comics anymore. Everything has got to be some huge galactic threat from Darkseid or some such. You can't have just simple adventures like this where Superman flies around saving the day and shit. And, you know, that's a damn shame, too, because stories like this are elegant in their simplicity. I mean, apart from the bullshit politics of it all, it's the kind of story that can only really be done in comics. But it's so rare to see comics like this anymore that it makes comics like this one stand out all the more. But think about it for a minute. Isn't it better to tell a variety of stories in comics? I mean, one month, maybe Superman can... I don't know, have trouble showing up for dates with Lois because bullshit keeps coming up, right? And then... Then maybe the next month, Crypto shows up out of, out of nowhere and he and Superman have fun beating up on some criminals and whatnot. And then, maybe the next month, Batgirl swings by for a visit and then she and Superman have an adventure together. And then, you know, maybe the next month after that, you could... I don't know. Mixes Pitalik maybe could show up and, and cause some mayhem. I mean, I guess what I'm saying here is not... Every issue or story needs to be some fucking earth-shattering threat that only Superman and the entire fucking DC universe have to band together to fight. I mean, don't, look, don't get me wrong. I like those stories as much as the next guy, but the lack of variety in those stories just bores me. You know? And then there's the art in this comic. This is Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson in their prime. So, I guess as usual, there's not a wasted bit of space to be found anywhere in this entire issue. And man, Superman looks fucking awesome throughout this whole thing. I mean, just check out that final panel at the bottom of page 9 with Superman all flying around large and in charge, just zipping around downtown Metropolis. I mean, just looks fucking cool. I guess, you know, speak, speaking of which, that panel, the one at the bottom of page 9, it looks like a photograph or something was used as the background there. I mean, if you have access to this comic, if you own a copy, go ahead and flip over to it. I mean, is it just me? Doesn't that kind of look like a, like a photograph there in the background? Does anybody know anything about this technique? Because, look, I'm, I'm not trying to be a pain in the ass about this, but it looks sort of like a photographic background, at least to me. Also, page one of Superman diving into the ocean. That, too, just looks fucking cool. You've got lightning and shit flashing all around. The rain's hammering down all over, uh, all over Superman's body. The wind's whipping his cape around. It just, it, fuck, it just looks amazing. Now, look, full disclosure. I'm a fan of the mighty Kurt Swan from way back, you know? To me, 
Kurt Swan, Superman, is definitive. He's had successors, but no real equal. But I got to tell you, when Murphy Anderson was his anchor, Swan's stuff never looked better, in my opinion. Now, I know for a fact, for a fact, that some people are devotees of other Swan inkers. Some people prefer George Klein or Bob Oxner or Frank Schiermonte or Dave Hunt or Tex Blaisdell or whoever. But for me, Murphy Anderson's top dog. You know, when, when he inked Swan's pencils, there's some kind of weird, fucked up third element that took over where the art was more than Kurt Swan's pencils with Murphy Anderson's inks. It's, it's like those two, those two guys were each half of one artist. And they, just, they had a strange way of getting the best out of each other. It's just fucking great. Anyway. Now... I went pretty hard on part of this story, but before I get too far into that and my reasons for that, let me just say that I usually try to run a nonpartisan type of podcast because I happen to think that talking politics... See, there's this theory out there, right, that podcasters shouldn't talk about politics because you're almost guaranteed to piss off half of your audience. Dude, I disagree with that. My theory is that if you talk politics on your podcast, it's virtually certain that you're not going to piss off half of your audience. You're actually going to piss off all of your audience. And I'll tell you what I mean. If, if people disagree with you because of your politics, they're pissed off because they disagree with you because of your politics. But even if they agree with your politics, here's the thing. They're still pissed off at you because... <clears throat> Because you're not really telling them anything that they haven't heard before, and you know what, for that matter, can't get from zillions of other places. So, that's just my theory. Talking politics is a good way to piss off not half of your audience, 100% of your audience. Still, I'm wiping my ass with that rule this time out because Len Wein is the one who injected politics into the story, not me. You don't like what I'm about to say? Take it up with Len Wein. Because to me, the fact that Len Wein is the guy that introduced the subject makes it a perfectly valid subject for me to tackle. Here's the thing. I believe in self-defense. I believe in the Second Amendment. If you don't want to own a gun, that's fine. Don't own a gun. But don't presume to tell me what I can and cannot buy when the fucking Constitution says I have the God-given right to own guns if I choose to. Self-defense is part of what gun ownership is about. If someone were to kick in my door at 3 o'clock in the morning, best case scenario is it'll be at least 10 minutes before the police can arrive. A lot of shit can happen in 10 minutes. That's why somebody who breaks into my house had better be ready to meet his maker because my shotgun is about to introduce the two of them. Guys, the studies about this stuff, they're in. The studies are in. Possession of firearms, or at least the potential thereof, discourages a lot of forms of violent crime. The Supreme Court has spoken on this. The individual has the right to keep and bear arms, and that is enshrined in the Constitution, so saith the Supreme Court. 
The common sense aspect of all this is or should be self-evident. Police can't be everywhere at every time, so the individual has to be ready, willing, and able to protect himself if, God forbid, the need should arise. There's no nice way to say it, so I'll just say it. The attitudes displayed in this comic book about firearms and self-defense are all a bunch of fucking bullshit propaganda, and it really stinks up this story. I would otherwise have been tempted to give this issue pretty much a perfect score, but that fucking paranoid and idiotic anti-gun stuff just fucks everything up for me. I'm sorry. But that's just the way I feel about it. And again, if you don't like my point of view about this, tough shit, okay? Len Wein is the guy that brought this up, not me. You don't like what I'm saying? Take it up with Len Wein. Tell the asshole keep this stuff out of his stories from now on. Anyway. Otherwise, though, I seriously fucking loved this issue. I'm, you know, you get away from the bullshit politics of it and just enjoy the other parts of the story. Dude, this is just a fun little action romp. You know, just a, a wacky night in the life of Superman, you know? It's a kind of story that you can only really tell in, in comic books. You couldn't do this in movies. You couldn't do this in even a TV show. This is a comic book story. And it's the kind of story that, in my opinion, makes the comic book format great. So anyway, so I think that's that. I'm going to take a break. Be right back after these messages. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com
You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, I'm back now, but I'm not finished talking about Superman, as you can see. I've been a fan of Superman my entire life. I honestly can't recall a single time when I wasn't aware of Superman. As a result, I consider myself to be a lifelong student of the character. Superman is by far my favorite character in all of fiction. To me, this is very close to definitive as far as Superman is concerned, and and I'm speaking of the Bronze Age here. I just fucking love the Bronze Age. Now, I I first started reading through the the entire run of Bronze Age uh, Superman comics back in 2007 or so, and by Superman, I mean the monthly comic called Superman, <clears throat> or adjectiveless Superman, if that works better for you. And what I discovered was that these comics weren't the silly little oddities that I originally thought they were. They had shitloads more depth, character, imagination, and, and just tons of other shit than I ever thought possible. Plus, reading those Bronze Age comics really puts the whole Superman-Lex Luthor rivalry into better context. It's easier to understand just how fucking epic their story is when you read all, all that pre-crisis stuff. And that's why I hold the, the Bronze Age to be pretty much definitive as far as Superman comics go. It's also why I love Smallville, the TV show Smallville. And it's why I think Smallville is definitive as far as Superman outside of the comics. The Smallville version of Superman was definitely headed in a very pre-crisis direction. It's, it's fucking epic, and I, I just love all of it. Now, don't get me wrong. I cut my teeth on the Burn Age Superman for a lot of years there. That post-crisis Superman pretty much defined all my ideas and views and thoughts and opinions about the character. But that began changing after a while. It was probably around... Uh, I don't know, 2006, 2007, I started considering Superman's psychology and how he necessarily sees the world. 
And what I eventually realized was that irrespective of whether you like the pre-crisis or post-crisis Superman better, Superman's not human. And so because of that, he, he's not going to see the world as a human. Now, if that bothers you, I ask that you hear me out before you lose your temper. One central caveat that we have to make going into this thing is that Superman has traveled the world more and been to a greater number of countries than any United States president, any head of state from any other country, or any pope, anybody. At all. Anybody. And on top of that, Superman sees everything. He sees colors that we can't describe, spectrums of light that we haven't discovered yet. He hears the human race at our worst. He sees us at our best. The whole thing. He's got an unmatched insight into the human condition. And so humanity, the world, the entire universe, everything is laid bare at a casual glance to this character. Pre-crisis or post-crisis, that's Superman. That's how he rolls. Now, the pre-crisis version of Superman shows us a character who remembers living on Krypton, seeing Jor-El and Laura and all that stuff. So when he, com- when he comes to Earth, he knows damn good and well that he's an orphan. And in fact, that that actually kind of haunts him somewhat throughout his life. What I'm saying here is that the pre-crisis Superman never had a human point of view about anything. He was culturally Kryptonian when his ship landed on Earth. The post-crisis Superman is different. He wasn't really born until he came to Earth, and he was raised to think of himself primarily as human. But over time, his powers developed. Over time, he would eventually see and hear things way beyond anything he could ever relate to anybody else. What I'm saying here is that the Burn Age Superman started off with a human point of view, probably about everything, but there came a point when that necessarily changed. Whether Clark was 8 years old or 18... There came a day when he literally stopped seeing and hearing things the same way any other human being in this world would. He stopped experiencing life from a human point of view, on human terms. Now, as I said before, Superman sees spectrums of light that we don't know about, colors we don't have names for. He hears vibrations in human vocal cords whenever someone speaks to him that our modern science probably doesn't even have ways to measure. Uh, He hears people, a a man and his wife bickering on the other side of the country, and he's possessed of such superhuman strength that he's constantly got to keep himself in check and make sure he never accidentally loses control. And what that means is he can't even hug people the same way that you and I do. And what I'm saying here is that both the pre-crisis and post-crisis supermen aren't human. They don't view the world through the lens of human experience. Both of them see the entirety of mankind. They both see everything that we as a human race have to offer. The good, the bad, the charity, the cruelty, the wars, the peace treaties, the tender affection, the physical abuse, all of it. As people, we can't hide anything from Superman. So either way you look at it, pre-crisis or post-crisis, Superman fundamentally must have a very different perspective than any human being who's ever lived. He's witnessed and experienced things he could never hope to explain to anyone else. 
And you don't get to experience those things without having your world absolutely rocked. It'd change how you view yourself, the world, and other people permanently. And that, that simple fact, the simple truth that Superman is not human and does not see things the way most humans do, that is what makes Superman's mission so poignant. Superman chooses a life of service because he believes there's hope for mankind. And guys, keep in mind, he knows how good we are. And he knows how bad we are. But no matter how awful we as people might be sometimes, Superman believes we can ultimately rise above it. When Superman looks at the human race, he's inspired. Whether he remembers Krypton from personal experience or not. Whether he grew up believing he was a human and later found out he wasn't, none of that shit matters. Superman's powers, observations, personal experiences, and everything else place him outside of and away from mankind on an interpersonal basis. That's what makes his inspiration from and hope for mankind so profound. And understand, Superman's perspective of things, his outlook, his senses, his experiences, those all come directly or indirectly from Krypton. It's in his genetic composition. Krypton ensures that Superman is never going to see the world, other people, or just fucking day-to-day life the same way as anybody else. But Jonathan and Martha Kent are the ones who shape Clark's sensibilities about these things. Thanks to their approach to child-rearing, Clark has the ability to cope with these things without going insane or turning into a despot or or whatever else. And I just kind of want to put this whole analysis on pause and say, what we see in things like Superman Red Sun or Kingdom Come is a Superman who's completely decoupled from Clark Kent. He has all of this power, but he doesn't have the Kents in his background anymore. It's not part of his thinking. Whether it's Red Sun or whether it's Kingdom Come. Either it was never there in the first place, like Red Sun, or he willfully turned his back on it in Kingdom Come. The end game of that is necessarily totalitarianism. Superman knows he knows a better way. It's Clark that grounds him. It's Clark that makes him a humanitarian. It's Clark that prevents Superman from becoming, I guess you could say, a global despot. Clark, and more specifically Jonathan and Martha, are what make Superman a hero and a champion rather than a benign but still totalitarian dictator. So, I guess what I'm saying is, in this sense, whether we're talking pre-crisis or post-crisis, Krypton is the what. The Kents are the how. Krypton gives Clark his ability to see the world in a way that nobody ever has before. The Kents are the ones who teach Clark how to process and internalize all that shit. Now, a lot of fans argue back and forth about whether Clark or Superman is the real character and which is the disguise. In other words, which is the truth and which is the lie? I think what those people are actually arguing about is whether Kal-El is the real character or if Clark is. 
Kal-El is presumably the distant alien, while Clark is the more grounded and well-adjusted human being. Which of those two sides is dominant? That's the question, but I think you can boil it down even further than that. It comes down to worldview. Does Superman look at life through Kryptonian eyes or from human eyes? I say neither, at least not exclusively. He's not Clark and he's not Kal-El. He's Superman. Superman is the real character. Superman is not human. Superman is not Kryptonian, psychologically speaking. Superman has a perspective completely his own, as I've said. Whether Superman remembers Krypton or not, his experiences place him way apart from the Kryptonian race. Generally speaking, no Kryptonian in history has ever experienced what Superman has, seen what Superman has, and all that. And the same is true for, all the, uh, for, for the entire human race, like I just said. Nobody's ever seen life the way Superman would see it. On top of that, nobody could ever relate to Superman's point of view, human or Kryptonian. We just don't have the tools to do it. It's like Spock once asked Bones, how can we have a discussion about an experience you can have absolutely no hope of ever understanding? Same's true for Superman. He can love his parents, he can depend on his parents for guidance, but ultimately he can never explain what he sees what he hears, or what he experiences. How can Jonathan or Martha ever relate to what it's like to light something on fire with a glance, or destroy a forest with a clap of their hands, or see Earth from orbit? They can't. But they can give Clark the foundation and the stability he needs to cope with these experiences, these powers, these abilities, far beyond those of mortal men. So make no mistake, Superman isn't human, and he isn't Kryptonian, and I speak psycho on, on a psychological basis. He's neither of those. His, his point of view is absolutely unique in all of the DC Universe, all of history. The pre-crisis Kal-El had his perspective changed the instant he arrived within reach of Earth's yellow sun. Kal-El ceased being Kryptonian in a cultural sense the minute he arrived on Earth. He never saw life on Earth from a human point of view. He can perhaps filter life through the human viewpoints of Jonathan and Martha, uh, Martha Kent, it's true, but he can't relate to that on a personal basis because he never lived life under circumstances where he had no powers and he believed himself to be human. So, pre-crisis Kal-El's point of view on life as a Kryptonian would see that it was over the minute his ship arrives on Earth. From that moment on, he's Superman. But what about John Byrne's Clark? Well, up to a point, Byrne absolutely nails it. This is a character who was raised as a human, by humans, who believed himself to be human, living life on a farm in a small town. His powers didn't fully develop until his teenage years, but when they reached their, their zenith, their apex, their maximum, call it whatever you want, when that moment happens, you can think of it as an, as an epiphany, but there came a moment when Clark's senses transcended human limitations. Sooner or later, he would be able to see and hear everything, like I was saying before. And it would be a shattering experience for him. 
The time would come when Burnage Clark would cease viewing life and the world from a human perspective because of his powers. Now, his attitudes and viewpoints would be informed by the Kents, no doubt. But he still doesn't see life the same way they do. Not anymore. That doesn't invalidate the Kents. Hell, if anything, it makes their guiding influence even more crucial because Clark now depends upon them to help, to help him place his new outlook, his new experiences, his new sensory perception into context. He can't do that on his own. That is what the Kents bring to the table that literally nobody else can. What I'm saying here is that the Burn Age Clark ceased being human the minute he developed his full array of superpowers. The reason for that is because he stopped seeing life from a human point of view. My contention is that it rocks him even harder because this is a transcendental experience for him. Clark used to have human limitations. Once upon a time, he couldn't see what was happening on the other side of the world. But now he can. Changing perceptions from so narrowly human to damn near godlike would rock the fuck out of this character. It's his moment of transformation. If Clark one day has these powers thrust upon him, he's even less human in a general sense than the pre-crisis version. So, post-crisis Clark's point of view on life is over. From that moment on, say it with me, he was Superman. So what's my point? The point is that any way you look at it, pre-crisis or post-crisis, Superman is who this guy really is. Whether it happens the minute his rocket lands on Earth or the, or the minute his powers reach their fullness, Superman does not and cannot look at life the same way a human or a Kryptonian would. His perspective has been irrevocably changed so much by his sensory powers that from a psychological standpoint, he's neither human nor Kryptonian. He is neither Clark nor Kal-El. He is Superman, now and forever. Now, if the character is Superman, you might ask, what purpose does Clark serve? Well, at least on the surface, you might think, Clark exists so that Superman can hear about disasters and things that require Superman's intervention the minute that they happen and then spring into action. Now, I'm not a fan of Superman Returns, but one of the things that I have to acknowledge is that the there is a there is a moment in that in that film that does ring true where Brandon Routh just sort of hovers above Earth in upper orbit and he just listens for emergencies that require his his attention and then he zips off to deal with them. He doesn't need a human touchstone in order to do that. He doesn't need to work a nine to five in order to gain access to that information. So again I ask, what purpose does Clark serve? Well, arguably Clark is Superman's most powerful weapon. I will explain. Superman can help people openly. He can rescue people from burning buildings. He can trade punches with supervillains. He can perform tasks that nobody else could ever hope to. He uses his image as Superman to do big, theatrical, impressive stuff like push back alien invasions and shit like that. But not everything is a job for Superman. There are some things that need to be handled with greater finesse than Superman can probably muster. 
Not everything in life can be solved with punches or superhearing. That's where the disguise of Clark Kent comes in. Superman uses Clark Kent as an identity, basically as a mask, to work in the trenches. Clark can expose injustice, corruption, and other evils that can't be dealt with by force of arms. Clark can write news articles and exposés that bring truth and justice to people who deserve it. Clark can help the everyman, the little guy, the other people that are, that are stuck in the trenches with no hope of getting out. Superman uses his mask of Clark Kent to do things that Superman can't do. Superman works openly as Superman to provide an example for other people to live up to. He's there to inspire people to greatness. To greatness. Superman uses his disguise as Clark Kent to inspire people to change things that just aren't or can't be jobs for Superman. He uses the disguise that is Clark Kent, the mask that is Clark Kent, to inspire people to justice. So again, whether you're talking about the pre-crisis or the post-crisis, Clark and Kal-El are just names. Neither of them describe who this character is. Superman is the real guy, whether it's pre-crisis or post-crisis. In both cases, Superman is the real character because, from a psychological standpoint, like I said, Superman is neither human nor Kryptonian. He is Superman. And part of the reason he's Superman is because he believes there's hope for the human race. Superman is inspired by people, and he wants to give that back and be an inspiration to people. And this is an attitude fostered by the Kents. This attitude is why Superman could only live in Metropolis. It's the bright, shiny city of tomorrow. It has its share of bad apples, no doubt about it, but Metropolis is the one city in the world that most clearly reflects Superman's values and optimism. He couldn't ever live anyplace else. And that's why I love the Bronze Age, because this whole diatribe I've just gone through is most evident there. Superman is usually presented as an aspirational figure in the Bronze Age. There's a place for Clark Kent in those stories, sure, but the lead character is clearly Superman. And I don't mean that he's the character that's being licensed or it's his name that's on the cover of these comics. I mean, he is the dominant psychological force in this character's life. It's Superman. And that tended to get watered down once John Byrne rebooted the character. And don't misunderstand me. I am not bashing on John Byrne. Like I said before, his version of Superman is how I really came to know Superman as a character. I grew up with those Superman comics, but guys, at the end of the day, I think he, Byrne, was very wrong. He was very wrong to position Clark Kent as the lead character and portray Superman as just a facade that Clark dreamed up to protect his private life. I mean, I understand that John Byrne wanted to play up the influence of Jonathan and Martha Kent, but he saw it as an either-or proposition where Superman must be human or he must be an alien. And I, to me, that's just a false dichotomy. My view is that, in a psychological sense, he's no more Clark Kent than he is Kal-El. Superman's neither of them. He's grown beyond both of those names. They limit him and his potential. He's not Clark and he's not Kal-El. He is Superman. And I think John Byrne completely missed that. Now, look. I still love the post-crisis Superman. I really dig 
the amount of work and effort that John Byrne worked through to create his new vision of Superman. And clearly the public liked it too, since you could argue that Superman ended up getting more national attention and media exposure after John Byrne than prior to John Byrne. And a lot of that, whether anybody likes it or not, was predicated in some way or another on John Byrne's Superman, directly or indirectly. All I'm saying here is that I think John Byrne dropped the nachos on this and a, a few other things. Still, he absolutely nailed it up to a certain point. He was right to give Clark a, a human point of view in a time and a place when Clark didn't have superpowers. Clark didn't have to pretend to be a human with a human's point of view because he was in effect, human, with a human's point of view. But with the onset of his powers, this version of Clark, the Burn Age Clark, should have undergone a transformation even more profound than the pre-crisis version of the character. But he didn't. And that I regard as a failure on John Burns' uh, part. That's the point. That is the Burn Age, or that should have been, the Burn Age Superman's pivotal moment of transformation, the onset of his powers, must coincide with the end of his ex human experience because it begins Superman basically having a borderline omnipotent view of the world. The pre-crisis character has a little bit of a different challenge. He grew up with powers. He barely remembers life without powers. But to the extent that he does, it overlaps with his brief life on Krypton. Now, as a teenager operating as Superboy in Smallville, young pre-crisis Clark is more or less living a compromise. He's using his powers to benefit others, as you might expect from Jonathan and Martha Kent's son. There's no doubt about that. The superhero gig in a little town called Smallville is good enough for him. It's the death of the Kents. That's what changes all that. That's the moment that Superboy becomes Superman. The Kents. The people who were the rock of his stability are now gone. No matter how great his powers are, no matter how much he loves his foster parents, he still loses them. Think about that for a minute. There's nothing he can do to save them. This is the pre-crisis character's first taste, not only of mortality, not only of sorrow, but of failure. He couldn't save the Kents. For the first time, he's given something his absolute best effort. But he still came up short. So as a result, Superboy has a choice to make. He can, he can let life's circumstances beat him down. He can hide on the farm for the rest of his life and just do superhero shit on the weekends. Or, he can take the next step. He can leave his old life behind. He can become a man. Now, we know which path he'll choose, but in the moment, he doesn't. Not necessarily. The struggle and tribulation of it is very real, very human. It's a very relatable experience. 
But rather than let the experience beat him down, rather than allow himself to be scarred by the loss of his parents, let that scar his psyche and inspire just brutally deviant behavior like Batman, Clark views losing the Kents as a learning experience. A painful learning experience, but still a learning experience. And so he leaves Smallville with sadness, but... I should emphasize, not with regret. When pre-crisis Clark Kent loses the Kents and moves away from Smallville, he does so as an older, wiser man, rather than staying there and hiding like a beaten, defeated, scared little boy. So again, whether it's pre-crisis or post-crisis, there comes a point when Clark Kent and Kal-El become irrelevant, obsolete names insofar as defining this guy's central identity. Now, the names Clark Kent and Kal-El have value, I guess in terms of describing where aspects of this character originate from, but ultimately, they're superfluous in, in terms of defining who he is now. He is Superman. And as I said, the pre-crisis continuity is where you get the best sense of all that. Don't get me wrong. I love the Burn Age, like I said, but the pre-crisis, it just has more of that epic vision that I love so much, which is so unique to Superman, that just the Superman myth, the legend, whatever you want to call it, that's, that's Superman. And I feel like that too ended up getting just lost and watered down in the Burn Age. It just kind of feels like it's Superman, but less so. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Now, tune in next week to listen to me and John M. Wilson from the Starman Observatory and also the New 52 Adventures of Superman. Honestly, talk about all kinds of shit. I mean, mostly Superman, yeah, but really all kinds of shit. Oddly enough, though, what we won't talk about is the fact that this next episode, assuming it comes out on time, and honestly, you know, who knows, but right now I have it scheduled for August the 19th, Assuming that's when it comes out, what we're, what we're not going to be talking about is the fact that next week marks the one-year anniversary of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And I'll, I'll be honest, it just wasn't on my mind when he and I recorded it. <clears throat> but yeah, there it is. So, happy anniversary to me. Yay and stuff. Also, I'd like to thank everybody who sent me feedback. Thanks to all of you. Even if all you have time for is just a quick missive, you know, just something you dash off real fast, I always love hearing from you guys. So thanks to everybody who sent me an email. Thanks to all of you who filed iTunes reviews. You know, just whatever else. Oh, and if you want to send me an email, you can send it to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. You can also file a, a, uh, an iTunes review for me just by searching for uh, Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Search for that in iTunes. All iTunes reviews will be read on mic, and all email will be as well, unless you specifically say you don't want your email to be read on mic. So, so yeah, I think, that's, I think that's pretty much it this time. So, bye, everybody, and I'll see you next week.
Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-
Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>